Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Alexander Lins-Rubiel will join us to discuss globalism versus nativism. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Well, the growing divide between those who are trained in the new digital economy and those who are not is certainly causing more than a few shakeups. Joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Alexander Munz-Rubiel. Dr. Rubiel is professor of OBS Business School, author and consultant. He is the author of the new book, Globalism versus Nativism, How to Bridge the Digital Divide. And uh, Dr. Rubiel, very pleased to have you today on the Grox Science Show. Well, it's my pleasure. It's my honor. Thank you very much for having me. There's certainly a fascinating book you've written here, uh, which you look at many of the, the forces behind the trends in globalism versus nativism, which is certainly going on in many economies around the world. Why did you decide to write this book? Well, for several reasons. And in my last book, this is my seventh book, I always try to look at trends that will affect the major economies and the major powers going forward. So in my last book, my sixth book, I analyzed technological competitiveness, inequality, aging of population, how that affects funding the welfare state and energy security. Um, if I can put in a pitch, it was called um, Bureaucrats, Politicians, and Statesmen. Uh, it's available on Amazon. And in this seventh book, um, I began to realize that although technology has made our lives much easier and more fun in many ways, it is also one of the causes of the bout of populism and nativism that many developed and other countries, uh, democratic countries, are facing. In Europe, we have populist governments, Italy, Poland, Hungary, in North America, in Latin America, um, in, in 2018, we've had the election of a uh, populist president in Brazil, in Mexico, whether it's extreme right wing, extreme left wing, uh, the premier of Ontario dubs himself a populist. They were all elected in 2018, also in Asia and the Philippines. Um, I have taught and um, worked, uh, promoted, defended multilateral institutions, free trade international trade agreements my my entire life. Um, and as a professor, I've, I was featured to the president of the World Bank and to other presidents of, inter- of international development banks. And so I know, and I, I believe in, very much still do believe in multilateral institutions, free trade, um, international trade agreements. But at the same time, um, President Obama in his last State of the Union urged society to have a debate about the pluses and minuses of technology. And I think that means the media, uh, as you're doing with me today, individuals, corporations, and NGOs, regulators, governments, international institutions. Um, I think they need to have a debate because obviously technology is wonderful, but it also has an impact in terms of potential job destruction, which is already happening. Um, so I'll elaborate more a little bit on, as, as, a, as I assume you asked me questions. So those were, are my main motivations. And I began the book, uh, in a way, upset at uh, populism, um, upset at uh, some of the people who have been elected who 
do not share the kind of vision that I have always had, which is of the international uh, rules-based system with international institutions, with free trade agreements. I began the book upset at those people, but as I have tried to um, just gather facts uh, and also follow events, I've realized that we have to understand the reasons why people are voting for populist politicians in order to come up with policy prescriptions. Because to complain about populism, we know uh, what some of the causes of populism, but just to complain about it will make it go away. So in my book, I humbly try to provide policy prescriptions for dealing with populism because the people who, who vote for populists, they have their own fears, their own anxieties, um, and, and they need to be addressed. Much has been made about the rise of populism in the, in the current era. Many of the trends that drive global trade, although they might be beneficial on the whole, you know, they cause pockets of economic downturn in, in regions where those people now are, are struggling to survive in a global economy. How is it then that you can take a perspective for the global and apply it to places where we're really struggling? Well, that's part of the challenge, of course. And I, I very much believe that all the causes of globalism are uh, of populism are are complex. Um, of course, uh, I would argue that we don't have a lot of statesmen. You know, there's always a cliche about the politician thinks about the next election, the statesman thinks about the next generation. And uh, you know, President Obama to me was a statesman, and that's he said we should have a you know a debate in society about technology, pluses and minuses. So, but we don't have a lot of statesmen, and basically we have politicians. And in a complex world with um, climate change, increasing inequality, um, c complicated trade agreements, automation, which is going to displace a lot of jobs, um, terrorism, in a complex world, uh, people who unfortunately do not have maybe the time that we have or are not professors like ourselves um, don't have the time to delve into all the details. So for populists, it is very easy to say at an international level. Um, to simply say immigrants, you know, they take your wage, they take your jobs, or they depress wages, and they they're criminals. They um, they bring in their entire families, abusing the welfare state. And if they're Muslims, they're a threat to national security. It only took me 20 seconds to say that, and that is of course completely wrong and and false because the overwhelming majority of immigrants, whether they are to the European Union or to the United States, are law-abiding people who work hard. But that populists have always been around and the world is becoming ever more complex. So that kind of formula of scapegoating immigrants is pretty, uh, is something that is happening around the world. It has happened in the European Union. It, it's happened. It's part of the reason we have populist governments in Poland and Hungary, the first ever populist government in Western Europe and Italy. Um, so there is a, a global um, problem with populism, even though, Brexit, in my view, is a manifestation of populism saying, let's see, let's get out of the European Union and, you know, and the UK will be restored to its great glory and see how that has turned out. Obviously, they're having many difficulties leaving the European Union. So uh, while there are country specific reasons why in different ways in which populism manifests itself in different countries, I do believe it, it some of the causes are common to all the countries. I would say that we've had uh, 10 years of growth. The U.S. economy emerged from recession in June 2009, so it will be 10 years in July of this year. And 
the last two years, we were having synchronized growth with both uh, developed and emerging and developing economies growing. And so at right now, the U.S. economy is doing very well with 50-year low unemployment rate of 4% and grew 2.9%. But the problem is that this economic growth cycle, which has lasted 10 years in the U.S. and uh, in the global economy, uh, has been very strong the last three years. This is, was going to come to an end anyway because there are economic cycles. But there are, of course, uh, factors now which, are, which may prompt this uh, long trend uh, economic growth that we've had the last 10 years. Um, it may come to, to an end faster depending on the policies implemented. And but I would just add one thing, that although people have recovered um, from the financial crisis of 2007-8 and from the recession 2007-2009, the recovery was very slow for the middle classes. Um, when they asked President, I'm sorry, when they asked uh, Vice President Joe Biden uh, on Meet the Press why Democrats were having trouble connecting with working class Americans, he answered, Vice President Biden answered, $17 trillion. That's the amount of household wealth that was lost in the first the financial crisis and recession in the U.S., adding up depreciation of homes, uh, loss in 401ks, loss in mutual funds, people's investments, uh, people who lost their homes. If you add all of that up, $17 trillion of household wealth was destroyed. And during Obama's two terms, that amount of money was recovered, but um, that's that's bigger than the U.S. GDP of of no, it's a little, it's about approximately the same as the U.S. GDP, which is eighteen trillion dollars. So that that loss of household wealth was recovered during the two uh, terms of President Obama, and he left office with four point nine percent unemployment, which was extremely low. But the problem is that we don't sometimes realize that people in the middle class they have had to struggle very hard to get back to where they were before this crisis. And so they're upset at the elites. They're upset at um, the way that you know trade agreements are complicated. Maybe they don't understand them. So people, yes, people have gotten back to where they were before the financial crisis of 2007, but they've had to struggle a lot to get there. And that's why they're upset and frustrated. And we have to understand that, that frustration and see what is driving them to vote for populist parties, especially the middle and the lower classes. As you pointed out earlier, but this has always been the way that populists have, uh, take advantage of these sorts of situations, and it's always easier than to blame other groups, people who are coming in to take the jobs, rather than dealing with the actual problems, in this case, changes to the economy, changes to technology. And there's going to be a group, which you would guess is going to be stuck in the middle where they're not ready for the new jobs, and the group that's coming up that should be trained for those jobs. And so how do we go through this transition process? Well, that's precisely what I what I try to to do in my book is to the second part of my book um, has contributions by uh, twenty professionals, uh, renowned professionals from uh, the top, each representing uh, one of the top twenty economies in the world by by size of GDP. So obviously, you know the U.S., China, um, Germany, Japan, UK, and and. And have has a, have at least one one professor or uh, other distinguished professional representing uh, each of the top 20 economies in the world. Some of them are, you know, presidents or vice presidents of business association. There's a vice president of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and I, so I try to get a global perspective and ask them 
you know, I have my own opinions, but asked experts what they think that can be done to um, to bridge this uh, digital divide, which is getting bigger. Um, it's obvious that we have, let's say, the winners of globalization, who are people that have STEM degrees or have technical skills, even if they don't have a technical degree, a university degree, and they tend to live in cities and they are not against trade, they're not against immigration, they're not against automation. And then we have people who are being, um, who predominantly live in the countryside, small towns, who don't have uh, STEM degrees, who don't have degrees in in, in, in the kind of uh, professions that are going to, that are increasingly necessary, or they don't have the technical degrees. Not everybody has to have a university degree. And these people are worried. They can no longer um, tell their children, well, you know, start working at a factory at age 18 in Ohio or uh, Michigan, or it doesn't matter, in France. You used to be able to retire at 60, good pensions, good benefits. And um, that's going to, that's disappearing. That is, that is going away. So this divide between, let's say, the winners of globalization and those who are being left behind, um, in my view, is getting bigger and will become even bigger as um, automation using artificial intelligence, using robots, using more and more machines, uh, according to all of the, uh, whether it's Forbes, whether it's McKinsey, whether it's the World Economic Forum, they all have projections of losses uh, of millions of jobs. Uh, for example, Forbes projects that by 2030, one in five jobs will be destroyed. McKinsey predicts destruction of 400, 800 million jobs by 2030 in the world. Um, and of course, these reports then we have to, you know, look at the um, some of the, uh, you know, not just the headlines, but also, you know, the specifics, right? So um, I don't want to scare people, but obviously uh, there will be tasks you know, tasks carried out right now by mortgage brokers, paralegals, accountants, some back office staff, they're very vulnerable to automation. Other jobs requiring more human interaction like doctors, lawyers, teachers, um, they are less prone to to be a victim of automation. Um, Even specialized lower waste jobs like gardening, plumbing, um, they will be less affected. Um, And obviously, the richer countries are going to have a lot more uh, automation with robots, with a with artificial intelligence. Uh, poor countries are not in a position to get there yet. But in the U.S. alone, for example, according to McKinsey, 39 to 73 million jobs may be eliminated by 2030. Um, but about 20 million of those displaced workers may be e- may be able to easily transfer to other industries. In the United Kingdom, again, according to the McKinsey report, 20% of current jobs will be automated over the same period. Um, so obviously, I would like my readers, excuse me, your listeners, and uh, to buy my book, um, and and uh, which is available on Amazon, and also as an ebook. Um, only it's only two two dollars ninety nine cents. But the ideas that I come up with, and also ask the experts, the professors around the world, um, to bridge this divide, are things obvious ones like like lifelong learning, lifelong training. Um, I think the apprenticeship system that Germany has should be uh, followed by other countries where you basically have partnerships between the private sector, universities, and the government to ensure that people um, who are doing an, learning, an, uh, uh, learning um, whether they want to be plumbers or they want to be electricians, they are assured a, a job, an internship with a, with a good company. I think the German apprenticeship system has done very well 
uh, for Germany and it should be adopted in more countries. Not everybody has to have a university degree. In fact, a lot of technicians make more money than university graduates, especially those of the humanities. And there are other things we can do. For example, it's obvious that if there are going to be, right now there are 8.6 million robots in the world. And uh, this is according to the International Federation of Robotics. And of those 8.6 million robots, 7.3 million are in the services and 1.3 million are in the um, in, in industry. Now, those these numbers I just gave are from 2016, but they are increasing rapidly. And um, again, according to the International uh, Robotics Federation, there will be 3 million robots by 2020. Um, when we look at the density of, uh, when we look at the density of, of robots measured by the International Robotics Federation, they look at uh, robots per 10,000 workers. Now, if we look at the world average, it's 74 robots per 10,000 workers in manufacturing and industry. Now, that, they, that may not seem like very much, 74, but then we look at, by continent, uh, Europe is 99, America 84, Asia 63, and then we look at the most automated countries, again, the number of robots per 10,000 workers, and South Korea has 631 robots per 10,000 workers. That's already close to 10%. They're close to 1,000, right? So that's almost 10%. Now, Singapore is at 488. Germany is at 309. Japan is at 303. The U.S. is at 189. But from these levels, the numbers are going to go up quickly. Because, for example, uh, industrial robots in Germany are projected to increase by 5% annually in 2018-2020. Um, other countries like South Korea, which is already the leader, it, it will spend 450 million, the government, in five years to double r the robot footprint. Um, the automotive sector and others in industry are going to are are the main um, clients of robots. In the U.S., projected increase in robot sales of 15% yearly from 2017 to 2020. These are all numbers from very authoritative sources like the International Robotics Federation. So if we have projected increase in robot sales of 15% annually uh, in the U.S. from 2017-2020, these numbers I just uh, gave of having 3 million industrial robots next year, um, they will increase very quickly. And just a couple more numbers without wanting to overwhelm people. But machines right now account for 29% of total hours worked in industry while people account for 71%. Now, by 2020, that's very soon, the ratio is expected to be 42% of the total hours worked by machines and 58% by workers. So we see that, um, that, that machines are taking over. That's even without getting into artificial intelligence. A future which, again, is, is changing very rapidly. And people who are looking forward into the future, looking at their own positions, what do you think that they should be doing in terms of preparing for the oncoming technological changes? What do you think we really need to be doing as, as a country, as many countries, to institute those policies that are necessary for creating an economy that's going to be sustainable with so many jobs changing automated or, or completely lost? Yeah, it is a great question, uh, Dr. Lee. It's a great question. Obviously, we also have in many in many rich countries, populations, uh, fortunately, people are living longer. So fewer people, fewer people are working, then um, it makes it even more complicated. Obviously, your question about what people should do depends on age. People who are, let's say, already in their 50s, 
or upward of their 50s or maybe in their 60s, they don't have to worry. You know, they, they have a right to, to enjoy their pensions and their retirement. But for those who, let's say, are younger than 55, I think the lifelong training is very important. Um, I think that the ability uh, to reinvent yourself, to acquire more knowledge, whether it's languages, whether it's more skills, um, I myself, you know, I, I myself, uh, uh, I'm, after 21 years of teaching in the traditional way, I now in the last two years have been teaching online. And of course, I interact with machines all day. And my last book was I self-published with Amazon. Uh, so I think it's not easy for people, uh, for everybody. I have my own struggles in, in, in learning more tech skills. I think that um, there just needs to be a debate, um, you know, among among uh, at, the, at the personal level, in terms of uh, corporations, the media, NGOs, governments, regulators. They need to all weigh in with their ideas. I mean, we, we will have pushback, of course, from the regulators because drones sometimes come close to crashing with airplanes, and uh, we have. Uh, for example, the U.S. government has banned uh, 3D, uh, 3D printing of, of guns. So regulators are also going to step in. We've had a lot of uh, protests by cab drivers because of obviously Uber and Lyft having uh, challenged the established uh, cab drivers. And there are protests in, in France, uh, the Yellow Vest movement, which may or may not spread to other countries in Europe, especially, as I say, by the middle and lower classes. Um, who may not be yet, um, who, who feel, who are not happy now. So if they're not happy now, um, it, it is my concern that as more jobs are destroyed, they will, they could, they could, you know, they could, uh, they could foster even more protests, which would be even more violent. And I think the, I think that the elites also have to understand that people um, people are are fearful for their for their futures for their jobs. What are the kids going to do? Not everybody has the the intelligence, unfortunately, or the or the means, the economic means, to get a degree in in STEM. And so we need to have these other options. We need to have apprenticeship systems improved. We need to have more lifelong training. But who's going to pay for this? So uh, Mr. Gates and Mr. Uh, Elon Tusk have talked about a levy on, on robots. After all, if you replace a person with a robot, that person, part of their paycheck was going towards funding the pension system and, and the healthcare system in, in Europe and to a lesser degree in the United States. But if you take out a person and part of their paycheck was going to fund um, benefits, pensions, healthcare, then that robot that replaces the person should also pay some kind of levy or tax. Uh, otherwise, it's just with people living longer lives, it, the numbers are not going to add up. So I, I think it depends on the person, the country. But some of the things I've mentioned, lifelong training, um, having a good attitude, um, not just thinking about yourself and how you're impacted, but looking at the, you know, the overall trends. And I think there needs to be also solidarity between generations. Obviously, people who are close to retirement, they can help younger people and, and vice versa. But it will it will take a lot of um, I think um, a lot of patience and debate in society. Um, and I do sometimes fear that uh, people, you know, they want to have, uh, they want to have the lifestyle of the rich and famous and all these fancy products and live in intelligent homes and be driven, you know, in self-driving vehicles. But people don't realize that that's something maybe that's going to be only possible for, 
people, uh, you know, rich people, upper class people, people in the tech sector, but people in, you know, middle class, lower class, I don't see them being able to have that those intelligent homes anytime soon because you have to upgrade your appliances, right, for, for 5G. Um, and and I, I just fear that this digital divide, if it's not addressed, could lead to a bigger economic divide. And I'm not the first to say it. I mean, Joseph Stiglitz, Nobel Prize winner, he wrote the book in 2000, Globalization and Discontent. And that was in 2000. So uh, I do think that we have to, you know, do it. All of us have to have to do a good job of communicating, explaining uh, these facts with patience, not talking down to people who may not, um, you know, share our knowledge or share our our, our, um, our professional um, accomplishments, and and try to be very inclusive, and um, and in that way, people will be realistic because right now. In the United States, we have full employment, right? They can't find people to, <laughs> there are not enough people. But as automation takes over and, and the business cycle and the economic cycle ends at some point and unemployment starts to go back up, if people have not saved, uh, we, will, we will have difficulties. And, um, you know, that idea of living in, in an intelligent home with all the refrigerator ordering food and the dishwasher running automatically and all of these devices connected to the internet of things. We have 26 billion things, devices connected to the internet of things. In 2025, it's supposed to get to 75 billion devices in the world connected to the internet of things. I think that vision of living in an intelligent home and being driven by a self-driving car um, and traveling you know, using an intelligent transport system, that's, that's possible. But but it's not going to be possible for everybody. Um, I fear that that again, if you're richer, if you're uh, upper middle class, or if you work for a tech company, or if you have a very good tech skills, uh, or make enough make enough money, maybe that will be possible. But if you don't have any of those possibilities, then you won't have that that vision, and that could further divide. The digital divide could further increase into an economic divide and, and populism could continue to to feed on itself. We were just talking with Dr. Alexander Munzrubiol. He is the author of the new book, Globalism versus Nativism, How to Bridge the Digital Divide. And Dr. Rubio, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Well, it was my pleasure and thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about my book and explain my ideas. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.